the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And I want to kick off the show by talking about something that's on everybody's mind, and that is the election that we had uh, last month, which in some respects is is, is not entirely over. And uh, the issue of voter fraud has been in the air. It's obviously you know, very important. A number of lawsuits have been filed uh, by different parties and different courts, uh, the Trump, Trump campaign, but others as well, to uh, question the, the results of the election in certain key swing states. And so far, those cases, I think it's fair to say, have not gone very far. Uh, the reluctance of, of any court, state or federal, to, to jump in and, and reverse what's been reported as the result of a presidential election in that state is that reluctance is immense. Uh, and uh, I, I, I don't think any of us are holding out a lot of hope that on uh, January 20th, somebody other than Joe Biden is going to get inaugurated as our next president. But I want to talk about what to me is one of the most noteworthy and interesting efforts to to uh, block the the certification of, of, of electors in, in some states and, and the uh, inauguration of Joe Biden. And that is the case that uh, Texas brought in the United States Supreme Court just a couple of days ago, uh, suing the states of Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And Texas alleged in that case that the elections as they were conducted, the presidential elections specifically, as conducted in those four states was unconstitutional and the results ought to be uh, set aside. And I believe something like 17 more states, a count might even be higher by now, but I think as of sometime yesterday, the total number of states that had joined in as plaintiffs in that case, along with Texas, I think it was a total of 18, including Texas. And and so any any lawsuit that's joined in by 18 states and potentially more before it's over uh, obviously needs to be taken r- rather seriously. And so I did a post uh, on Powerline uh, where I did take that case seriously and and analyzed uh, what it alleges and 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 whether it has any prospect of success or not. And the, the the case is interesting in several respects. For one thing, why is it in the Supreme Court? Normally, you can't just start a lawsuit in the Supreme Court. And and the reason they're able to do that is because the Constitution provides that the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction, which means you can actually start the case there. You don't have to start it in the, in the district court and work your way up on appeal. You can start the case in the Supreme Court if it is a lawsuit between states. And the Supreme Court also has exclusive jurisdiction. That is, there's no other court in which that lawsuit could be commenced as between Texas and these four uh, defendant states other than the Supreme Court. So that's what the case is doing there. And, and so what does the case allege? Well, it alleges that under the Constitution, 
there's something called the electors clause. And what that says is that state legislatures have plenary authority over the appointment of each state's electors for president and vice president. A lot of people don't realize this, but the Constitution does not say that you and I uh, get to vote for the uh, for the electors in our state who will choose the the next president. And in fact, for the first um, oh, 80 years or so of our republic, that was not the usual practice. Uh, it's it's you know it's it's as as time has gone by that state legislatures have said, well, here's what we're going to do: we're going to have a popular election that is going to uh, that is going to uh, choose our state's electors. But what the Constitution says is that is that that is entirely entirely up to the legislature in each state and nobody else. And it doesn't say it's up to the state. It says it's up to the state legislature. And so what, what this lawsuit alleges, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a theory that at some level has got some, some merit. It, it alleges that in these four states, and in fact it's true in many other states as well, changes were made to the election procedures for 20, uh, the year 2020, it, it essentially changes in the election law, that were not made by the legislature and therefore are invalid. And they're right about that. This happened all across the country. And, and sometimes um, secretaries of state would just issue orders, issue guidelines that are very different from what is provided in that state's actual election law as enacted by the legislature. And, and what Texas and the other states are saying here is they can't do that constitutionally. It's not just a matter of Pennsylvania law. It's constitutionally uh, improper for a secretary of state to purport to allow procedures or, or, or order procedures that are different from what is provided in state law. The other thing that happened all across the country, and I'm intimately familiar with this because it happened in my own state of Minnesota, is that the Democratic Party lined up plaintiffs to start lawsuits and the nominal defendants in those cases were Democratic secretaries of state. That's what happened here in Minnesota. And, and, and what they did was they, they brought lawsuits alleging that on account of COVID, various uh, provisions of the state's election law are inappropriate in some way and, uh, and should just be dispensed with. And, and the Secretary of State would then, within a matter of, of hours or days, uh, settle, in quotes, settle that lawsuit by saying, okay, you're right, and enter into a settlement agreement whereby uh, various provisions of state law are simply done away with. And, and, and a common provision is the one that, that, was, that was done away with in that manner in my state of Minnesota, but also in a number of other states, is the requirement that signatures on mail-in ballots be witnessed. That's one of the very few safeguards that we have against voter fraud in the context of mail-in or absentee ballots. And it's always been recognized by everybody. This is not a partisan thing. It's always been recognized that mail-in ballots represent the biggest opportunity for fraud. They arrive in the mailbox. You know, who knows who filled it out and who signed it. And one of the, one of the few uh, restraints that we have to prevent voter fraud is that those signatures have to at least be witnessed. So somebody else at least has to be willing to sign his name and say, yes, I know Fred Smith, whose ballot this is, and it actually is being signed and submitted by Fred Smith. Well, in many states, that requirement of a witness signature on mail-in ballots was done away with uniquely for this election.
And what what this lawsuit brought initially by the state of Texas says is that that is unconstitutional, that secretaries of state, whether by settlements of lawsuits or anything else, cannot constitutionally change the election laws in their state. And as a result, in these four states, the election as conducted this year was simply unconstitutional. And therefore, the results of the election should be set aside by the Supreme Court. Now, there's more to it than that, but that, that is a, a, a simple explanation of what this case is, um, is all about. And, and it also alleges that in each of these states, the number of ballots that were counted that were specifically related in some way to these unconstitutional procedures, uh, for example, unwitnessed mail-in ballots, uh, far exceed the margin of victory in each, in each state. So, so what, what do these 18 states want the Supreme Court to do? Well, obviously, the, the hour is late and the time is short, but, but they allege in the, in the complaint, in, in, the, in the motion that they've filed, that there's ample time for the Supreme Court to act here. And they want the court to declare that any electoral college votes cast by the electors appointed in those four states are in violation of the electors clause in the 14th amendment and cannot be counted and they want to uh, the supreme court to enjoin those states from using the 2020 election results as reported uh, to to appoint presidential electors to the electoral college and and they want the court to authorize those states to conduct a special election to appoint presidential electors which would have to be done of course uh, right now and 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 the prayer for relief goes on so that's that's what this lawsuit is all about that's what they're asking the supreme court to do now do they have any chance uh no i I don't think that they do uh my friend uh andy mccarthy describes this case as frivolous and he says that it flies in the face of certain uh court of appeals precedents he thinks the supreme court uh, wouldn't consider that these states have standing for reasons that are probably good and will simply issue a one-line order uh, denying the motion uh, to bring this proceeding in the Supreme Court. And I think that's right. I, I, I think that, you know, regardless of what we think about what happened in November and the months leading up to November and since since Election Day, the, the possibility of any court, the U.S. Supreme Court or any other court, uh, being bold enough to try to overturn uh, the reported uh, result of the presidential election in any state, uh, let alone multiple states, uh, it simply is not going to happen and probably shouldn't happen. You know, we've got serious problems with the election procedures in this country that need to be addressed, but they should be addressed legislatively, not uh, through interference by the courts. That would be, a, uh, I, I think, a very dangerous precedent to set. Well, we're going to be go to some messages now, and we will be right back with more on the Dan Proft Show after this. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are joined now by Steve Malloy, proprietor of uh, JunkScience.com and formerly a member of Donald Trump's EPA transition team. Uh, Steve, thanks for being on the program. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Steve, you've got an article 
uh, in the Wall Street Journal that I like a lot. And the title of the article is uh, How to Stop the Paris Climate Accord. And I want to start today, uh, Steve, by talking a little bit about just reminding our listeners about the Paris Climate Accord and uh, what that was or is and, and why it would be such a terrible agreement for the United States to participate in. Okay, so the Paris Climate Accord is sort of a follow-up to the Kyoto uh, Protocol of 1997. And the idea is for you know, countries around the world to sign up to cut emissions. And President Obama signed the United States up to cut uh, its emissions by, is, of, of greenhouse gases by 26% by uh, 2025. And he did this by executive action you know, of trying to avoid having to submit this to the Senate as a treaty for ratification. And you know, the, the Paris Climate Accord is a problem because it just sort of, you know, Obama promised arbitrarily to cut emissions. Um, and there's, you know, the U.S. cutting emissions unilaterally is going to have, regardless of how you feel about, you know, U.N. science, is going to have no effect on the climate. I mean, that's, you can show that mathematically. Um, and now we have uh, Joe Biden, you know, wanting to come in and has promised on day one to re-enter the Paris Climate Accord and maybe even increase our emissions cuts. And, and we all heard during the campaign how Joe Biden wants to, you know, phase out fossil fuels and get rid of fracking. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of uh, horror and irony in all this. You know, I guess the irony first is that, you know, the United States is really the only nation that has reduced um, by any meaningful, well, not meaningful, but significantly reduced its emissions over the years, and that was because of fracking, and that's the very thing Joe Biden wants to get rid of. Now, if we, if we re-enter this agreement, um, I'm concerned that, um, you know, like the, the left was, a, was able to make, doc, effectively turn DACA, another executive action, into law, um, that, you know, the left will find some friendly federal judge someplace to turn the Paris Accord into law. And, you know, then we will have uh, the force of law requiring nationwide emissions cuts. That will just be a disaster for our economy. You know, the other day, President Trump said the Paris Climate Accord is gonna, was going to do nothing for the environment, but it's going to, you know, destroy our economy. And that's exactly correct. You know, it's interesting, Steve. I, I think a lot of people uh, lose sight of what we've been spared over the last four years because Donald Trump was president. And this is a great example of something that a lot of people have probably almost forgotten about. Um, and, and simply because we had a Trump administration instead of, uh, in, instead of a Hillary Clinton administration right. for the last four years, you know, this kind of, of gratuitous action devastating to the economy hasn't taken place, but now we're, we're looking at it uh, as a real possibility. Yeah, you know, John, I've been working on environmental issues for 30 years now. And over those 30 years, uh, our environment has been clean and safe. And President Trump is the first president to realize that we don't need any more environmental regulations. So he put a clamp on EPA and all the nonsense that the Obama administration was doing. You know, the Obama administration, it, with its war on coal, pointlessly destroyed 50,000 high-paying coal jobs, hundreds of thousands of other support industry jobs, coal communities, all for no, no reason. The weather stayed the same. And so we've had this tremendous economic boom during the Trump administration until COVID came along. One of, one, one of the main reasons is because uh, President Trump 
put a clamp on EPA, and EPA stopped issuing these pointlessly expensive regulations. And you know now, if if we're going back into you know B- Obama too or Biden, um, you know Biden has uh, he he's gonna he's gonna turn the EPA back on again. And you know, there's nothing good gonna come out of that. You know we went from uh, energy uh, dependence in, in under Obama to e- energy independence and even energy dominance with Trump. And that's all gonna come to an end if if Joe Biden is allowed to you know enter the Paris Climate Accord and it. it Courts rule that it has the force of uh, force of law, and we start, you know, uh, arbitrarily cutting emissions. So, how can President Trump stop this uh, disaster from happening? Well, so President Trump uh, very wisely, once again by executive action, took us out of the Paris Accord in June of 2017, and that finally became effective uh, November 4th, day after the election this year. Uh, and you know, as I mentioned earlier, Joe Biden has promised to put us back in day one. Well. What President Trump can do to try to bollocks that up is to take the Paris Accord, uh, put a cover letter on, send it over to the Senate, treat it as a treaty. And as a treaty, uh, Mitch McConnell in the Senate can either bring it up for a vote and uh, have it you know, uh, summarily defeated like he did the Green New Deal, or he could just pigeonhole it and consider it a Senate. Either way, um, that action, that simple action of transmitting it to the Senate uh, demarks the Paris Climate Accord as a treaty, and that will make it more difficult for Joe Biden to not only re-enter it, but also for any federal, future federal court to uh, turn an executive action into law, like they did with DACA. Steve, as I recall, this is what happened with the Kyoto Accord, you know, the granddaddy of them all, you know, when all the countries were going to cut, cut their CO2 emissions. That got submitted submitted to the Senate as a as a treaty, and I believe the Senate voted it down uh, 99 to nothing. Well, yeah, no, John, it never got submitted. There was a sort of preemptive Senate vote before the Obama administration signed the accord. And the preemptive Senate vote was 97 to nothing against uh, the Kyoto Accord because India and China and other developing countries weren't going to be forced to do anything. Um, after President Clinton signed the Kyoto Accord, he never actually submitted it to the Senate. Of course, President Bush okay. didn't either. But but still, uh, that Senate vote goes down in history, you know, as a as a clear <laughs> clear statement of disapproval. And I th- I think it was very worthwhile. And I like your idea a lot because if Mitch McConnell uh, puts um, uh, puts this thing up to a, a vote in the Senate, it's going to go down to a to a flaming defeat, right? Uh, it should go down to almost a unanimous defeat, just like the Green New Deal. Uh, Democrats probably wouldn't even show up to vote on it, but that's fine with me. I don't really care. Um, I don't even care if it's voted on. The important thing is that President Trump says this is a treaty and the Senate needs to ratify this. And that's the message that needs to go out. You know, every other country has treated it, the Paris Climate Accord, as a treaty. Uh, President Obama purposely tried to call an executive action to avoid having Senate ratification, to avoid having the Senate uh, trash the vote, because you need two-thirds of the Senate to approve a treaty, and that's just not going to happen. Even if Democrats control the Senate, you're not going to get two-thirds for a treaty. Well, nowhere near it. So so we've only got less than a minute to go here, um, Steve, but just very briefly, how bad do you think uh, the Biden administration is going to be from an environmental standpoint? Well, I think awful. I mean, just listen to, you know, Joe Biden's supposed to be a moderate, and he's talking about phasing out fossil fuels and getting rid of fracking. I mean, if you get rid of fracking, well, what's going to happen? Well, instead of having $2 gas, we're going to have $6, $8, $10 gas. 
instead of being energy dominant, we're going to be energy dependent again. And who are we going to be dependent on? OPEC, Iran, China, Russia. I mean, it's just going to be awful. So it's bad for our economy. It's bad for our national security. Steve Malloy, uh, thank you very much for being with us on the Dan Proft Show. We'll be right back after these messages. Thanks, John. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We are joined now by Larvita McFarquhar. Larvita, thanks for being on the program. Thank you for having me. You know, Larvita, I think I want to just take a moment to set the stage here and let our listeners know who you are, and then and then we can we can jump in. Um, Larvita is a, um, a young woman lives in a little town called Lind, Minnesota. When I say little, I think it's fewer <laughs> than five hundred people in the southwestern corner of, of of Minnesota, and she owns a restaurant and bar called Haven's Garden as well as a gymnastics studio that's right next to the, the restaurant and bar. And uh, Larvita has been in the news because uh, here in Minnesota, we had a governor-ordered shutdown of all restaurants, bars, and so forth for some months in the spring and early summer. And now there's been another shutdown, a uh, second round of, of shutdowns ordered by our governor. And Larvita uh, is is just not putting up with it. So Larvita, uh, tell us first of all, tell our listeners just a little bit about your business, Haven's Garden. Well, Haven's Garden, I named it Haven's Garden because I wanted to to feel like a safe haven. When you came in, you know, everyone's welcome. They're at ease. They can um, just come in, socialize, have a good time, laugh. We do open mic and have different nights that we do different things on just so the community can have a place to go and hang out and have a... Um, a good time. And so I started um, actually the gymnastics in 2016. Um, it's a dance studio gymnastics place because in Lind and Marshall area, they never had a real gymnastics team. That um, My goal was for kids to be able to fulfill their dreams. You know, if they wanted to be in the Olympics, they could be in the Olympics. If they wanted to do collegiate college gymnastics, they would be able to do that. But you have to have the right training and you have to have the perseverance to continue. Gymnasts work really hard. And um, so I wanted to bring that to this area because I grew up in Marshall and they didn't have that opportunity for kids when I was growing up. So my girls are four beautiful daughters who helped me with everything. They're amazing. Um, They were gymnasts. And they had some of the best training in the world. And I knew how important that was to get the training at a younger age. Gymnastics, to me, sorry, teaches um, such life skills of perseverance, falling down, getting back up, and never giving up. And so that actually taught me. I was a coach, and we were, me and my daughters were actually the high school coaches, too. And so then when my girls did gymnastics for so many years, um, I always thought, you know what, it would be so nice if they had a place for parents when they drop their kids off that they could go relax and have a good time while the kids are doing gymnastics and so when I came to Lind I was like this place is perfect for that because it already had a restaurant in a whole giant open area that I could use the gymnastics for and so I'm like this is perfect this is what I've been I dreamed about you know and it's funny because Yahweh God gives 
put, put it in fruition. You know, he made it happen, even though sometimes you don't think your dreams are really going to come true. It's been a lot of work, but we're not afraid of work, you know, and um, that's what we've been doing. And so in 2017, we opened up the restaurant. And, so, um, so let me just pause you there on the yeah. restaurant, Larvina, because when, when our governor, Tim Walls, issued his second restaurant and bar shutdown order, <laughs> you went on Facebook. You've got a Facebook page. You went on mm-hmm. Facebook and you said Haven's Garden is going to be open Friday night, 8 to 11 or 9 to 11, something like that. We're going to have mm-hmm. open mic and notwithstanding the governor's order, we are going to be open for business. And, and mm-hmm. tell our listeners what, what happened after you, you made that stand on, on Facebook. <laughs> Um, well, I got a couple calls. I got a call from the um, attorney general's office telling me that um, that I'm not supposed to open, and if I do open, you know, they will get an injunction to shut me down. And they called twice and sent me a letter. I got a call from my health department saying that I'm not allowed to be open and that they would take my licenses. And um, yeah, so it's been a little crazy with the threats and the bullying and the harassment. And I had a couple of visits from my um, local sheriff's department, but they were really nice and they were just explaining, you know, more just teaching, I guess that's what they would like to call it, um, making sure that I know the possibilities of what could happen. And so I'm like, yes, I am aware of the fines. You know, they're threatening to fine me $25,000 for each occurrence that I'm open and then um, just different things. And I, I don't know if you know the latest. So yesterday we were open and um, they, the state came, the Department of Health came down and gave me a cease and desist order and they posted it on my door and said that we are not allowed to be open for 72 hours. And that happened at 11 o'clock. And the funny thing is we were still open. So at two o'clock, I, um, my health department, um, Southwest Health and Human Services, came back and reissued my license. So at about 11, they gave me a cease and desist order. And at 2 o'clock in the same day, the health department came back and gave me my license. Because I don't know if I said it. Last week on Wednesday, they pulled my license. They so they gave you your license back. I had not yes. heard that, Larvita. Yes. That's, that's, yes. that's really interesting. We're going to come back to that and I'm fill sorry, in some I'm other... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to come back to that and fill in some other some other blanks in the story. It's a okay, incredibly yeah, interesting so interesting story. We got to run to a break, Larvita. We're going to be okay. back with more from uh, Larvita McFarquhar after these messages. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking with Larvita McFarquhar, who has gotten rather famous. She, there was a piece about her in the Daily Mail even uh, a week or two ago um, for, for defying the restaurant shutdown order that is currently in effect in, uh, in Minnesota. And so, Larvita, before the break, we were talking about how you got all these uh, communications from the Attorney General's office and everybody else warning you not to open uh, mm-hmm. on that Friday, that first Friday night when you said we're doing an open mic. But you did. And just take a moment, if you would, just what happened on that Friday night? Was it, you know, what, what happened when you when you opened? Um, well, it was actually wonderful. We had Patriots people from all over the state. We even had some coming from Iowa and a little bit farther away just to come up to support me, to say that we stand with you. We understand what you're doing. And we had some people from the town and other local areas. And it was just so beautiful. We had um, karaoke. People got up. We're dancing. Just having a really good time and just 
realizing that, you know, we're supposed to be living our lives, not hiding away in fear. And so that night we didn't hear anything, you know, from the State Department, from the sheriff, anything. But what I didn't know was that they had sent someone down there, I guess, undercover um, and from the health department, and they never identified themselves. They didn't tell me they were there. They didn't say anything. I would have invited them in if they would have told me, but they didn't. And they um, just said that, so on Wednesday, the following Wednesday, when the health department came, they said that there was someone there and that they were taking pictures and that they had informed them that I was open and I had about 80 to 100 people there and that um, I was in violation of the order. Now, I want to just I want to ask you a couple of questions before we move ahead with the story, Larvita. We keep talking about the health department and so on. Has anybody ever contracted COVID in your in your restaurant? uh, No. Haven's Garden. And and in fact, in fact, the Minnesota Department of Health has put out numbers on on the COVID cases that they've been able to trace to a particular source. And by their own numbers, only 1.7% of COVID cases were contracted in restaurants. And, and, and and also gyms have been shut down and, and 0.3% have been traced to gyms. And, and so, you know, this, this whole thing, and I think part of your point here, Larvita is that it is so arbitrary Yes. For the state of Minnesota to be driving small business people like you out of business yeah. when when their own data uh, show yeah. that it's just completely arbitrary. Yes, it's it's just, you know, again, the governor called this non-essential. And to me, I say this all the time, all life, all businesses are essential. Legal businesses are essential. And um, for him to pick and choose the winners and losers in the game of business and in life, it's unconstitutional. I don't understand how... Anyone thinks what he is doing is okay. Um, yeah, and the numbers, he's not even going off of his own numbers, the data that he puts out there. Um, so I don't understand where he's coming from. And no business owner, no person in America should be saying that this is okay, that they understand what he's saying. When even if we're going off his own data, that it doesn't make sense to shut down small businesses. It doesn't make sense to shut down restaurants or gymnastics studios, our gyms, or people that are just trying to make a living. And one, for our gymnastics gyms, for little kids, they need an outlet. They, they should be exercising. They should be working out. They shouldn't be sitting at home. We already know it's bad for their mental health. We already know what it's doing to our kids. I mean, people are committing suicide. This is unrealistic. This is unbelievable that we as Americans are sitting back and letting our governors take over and be tyrants. This is not what America stands for, at least not the America I grew up in. So I'm just still dumbfounded that we are sitting by and letting um, them take control and do whatever they want. And of course, one point you've made, I think very eloquently, Larvita, is they still want to collect their taxes. You know, you, yes. you still owe property taxes, and I'm not yes. quite sure how you're going to get the money to pay your property taxes if they won't let you open your restaurant. Right. Yeah, that's So, Larvita, so, so let, let's just fast forward a little bit. Mm-hmm. You've, you've continued to, to keep Haven's Garden open despite you know, the, these various orders and contacts that you've gotten from, from the government. Is that right? Yes, we've been open um, every day. Well, let me not say every day because we're not open on Saturday, Sunday. So Monday through Friday, we are open. And you mentioned right before the break that they gave you your, your food and beverage licenses back. Mm-hmm. What what is, does that mean? They're backing off, or what does that mean? I really have no idea. I just look at it as a blessing from God, Yahweh. You know, I take it as a win. You know that they um, are siding with us, that they're supporting local small businesses. Um, as for the state, I don't know what they're doing. Um, I 
I have no idea. So I don't, you know, this all happened on the same day. You know, I get a cease and desist order from the Department of Health, and then from Southwest Health and Human Services, I get my license back. So I really don't know what game they're playing, but all I know is I'm going to keep standing on the Constitution. I'm going to keep standing on the Word of God and trusting that He knows what's best and what, you know, what I'm supposed to do and what's going to happen. And so to me, this is a blessing. And so I'm excited about it that I got my license back, and I think it's um, great news for other small businesses to just open up and take a stand. So, Larvita, uh, I know that there are other uh, restaurants and bars around the state of Minnesota who are following your lead in standing up against what what you believe, and I think you're right, is an unconstitutional order. I know there's one in uh, East Grand Forks that's gotten some publicity. Um, What's going on there? Is this turning into a movement, or what, what do you see happening? Yes, I see it turning into a, a movement. And I just want to say I'm so proud of Jane. Her name is Jane Moss. She's amazing. Um, we have been talking, and, you know, she has employees that she's worried about, that they can't feed their families, you know, sorry. You know, and they're losing everything. And she took a stand and said, you know what, no, I'm fighting for my workers. I'm fighting for my community. She's fighting for herself, you know, to make a living. Her kids work at her bar also, and she has other people working there. And she said, enough is enough. I'm going to take a stand, and I'm hoping that everyone in Minnesota and across the country decides to stand with us and take open up and just say, you know what, we're opening up. We're going to not obey unconstitutional, unlawful dictates, mandates from a governor, any governor. Um, no, so she's taking a stand, and I'm so proud of her, and it's just such a blessing to see more businesses opening up, and I do believe that businesses are going to take a stand and you know, be the leaders that they have been called to be and just... Um, go out there and open up. Larvita, we've got just under a minute left. If our listeners want to help you in any way or encourage you in any way, what can they do? Um, They can go to action, the number four, liberty.com and sign a petition. And they can give me a call at um, 507-591-0936. Or they can reach me at my website. um, I'm sorry, my email is alhavengarden at gmail.com. Larvita McFarquhar, uh, great to have you on the Dan Prof Show. Good luck to you, and we'll be staying Thank in touch you. as the story uh, continues to unfold. We'll be right back after this. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Before the break, we were talking with uh, Larvita McFarquhar, small business owner in uh, Lind, Minnesota. And I just want to add a little postscript to, to that interview. And and if if we were doing this on television or, or if you were looking at, at one of the Internet videos about Larvita, one of the things that you would see is that she's black. You know, she's a, she's a pretty uh, black woman, I'm guessing late 30s, maybe 40 years old, as she said, with uh, a single mother with uh, with four daughters. And it's totally irrelevant story um, and, and to what she's doing. But 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 it does have I, I think it's it's an intriguing fact for, for this reason. Um, 
her bar and restaurant, Haven's uh, Garden, is in a town of, of 500 people in, in a southwestern corner of Minnesota. This is, uh, this is a very white part of America. You know, if you, look at, if you look at a video of, for example, that was taken when she was open on that famous Friday night when she refused to initially refused to follow the governor's order, that clientele is white. You know, and, and her customers, uh, a lot of them, I have no doubt, uh, arrive in her uh, parking lot and pick up trucks. Uh, these people who are her supporters, her, her, her patrons or customers, her friends uh, in that part of the state of Minnesota are virtually all white. And they are virtually all people that we have been told for how many years now by uh, starting with Hillary Clinton, but it didn't really start there. But but Hillary was the one who called all those folks deplorables, right? And um, and I just find it an interesting fact that you know here's this small business owner in this this little corner of uh, in a little town in Minnesota, and uh, the people who patronize her restaurant, uh, the people who stop in on a Friday night, uh, the people who have continued to support her and patronize her, uh, just about all of them. Are are in the category, you know, these 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 rural Americans, in the category uh, that Hillary Clinton has famously called uh, deplorable, and that uh, the Democrats, the liberals, constantly look down on, constantly look down on. And of course, the the the, the key element in their scorn for all these all these you know rural Americans is is the allegation that they are racists. You know, that's the cornerstone of, you know, why why are all these people in, in small town America deplorable? Well, that's the reason. And I, I just find this story interesting. It's not it's not relevant to the main point, but I just find it kind of an interesting sidelight that if you if you look at, you know, who's supporting Larvita, uh, who are her friends, who are her customers, uh, they are uh, the deplorables. We will be uh, back with the next hour of the Dan Proft Show after this. Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Nicole Stell Garnett, adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute, who also writes regularly for City Journal. Nicole is the author of Lost Classroom, Lost Community, Catholic Schools' Importance in Urban America. Nicole, thanks for uh, being on the Dan Prof Show. Thanks so much for having me. Nicole, you've got a new uh, paper out and a long piece, a lengthy, um, in-depth piece at uh, City Journal talking about charter schools and raising a really interesting question, a kind of a profound question. Uh, and I guess my paraphrase would be, uh, should we consider charter schools in legal terms to be private rather than public? And if so, 
Uh, what are the implications of that? Is that a is that a fair paraphrase of the, some kind of basic issues that you're raising? Yeah, I think that's actually a fair paraphrase of what the paper says. Although it focuses um, in particular at how how we should think about charter schools, which are designated as public schools by state law, but also privately operated. Whether we should consider them private schools for purposes of public funding to religious schools. So that is to say. Should charter schools be able to be authentically religious, to teach religion just the way private schools do? So the reason that matters is that um, for many, over nearly two decades now, the Supreme Court has made clear that private schools can receive public funds through parental choice programs like vouchers and tax credits. But the assumption has long been that charter schools cannot. Because charter schools are public schools, they must be secular schools. So my paper sort of makes the argument that really for federal constitutional purposes, we should think of these schools that are privately operated as just like a private school participating in a private school choice program, they should be able to be religious, and therefore the quest of all the laws of every state that require them to be secular may actually violate the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. And Nicole, as I understand it, just my kind of crude layman's you know view of this, I think that charter schools have always been classified, to my knowledge, as public schools, albeit this kind of funny hybrid. You know, the the, the reason why they're they're able to be innovative in many cases is because, of course, they're they're privately operated, but they're publicly funded. And I think that is what uh, most people think of as the touchstone of, um, of of being a public and therefore secular school. But you argue in your paper that that's not necessarily so. Right. So all states do call charter schools public schools. That's a universal. Um, and charter schools call themselves public schools. I mean, maybe for your listeners, it would it would take just to take a quick step back and explain exactly what it is that a charter school is. Not everyone may not know. Charter schools were invented, for one of a better term, in Minnesota in 1991, and they're privately operated almost exclusively. And they're, they the operator um, makes a deal. It's called a charter, just like a contract, essentially, with something called a government authorizer. So the government says. In some states, the authorizers can actually be private themselves, but usually it's a state entity or a school district. The government says, private operator, you can run a school, and we're going to give you freedom to run the school in a particular way, and that's this charter, this agreement will say what your school is. The one thing they can't be is religious. So it says you can be any kind of school in the world, but you can't be a religious school because we're calling you public. So interesting, as you say, everybody thinks, well, they're publicly funded, so that makes them public. Supreme Court has made clear that that's just not true. Many private entities are publicly funded, and they aren't uh, public entities. They're not government entities. Defense contractors aren't the government. Um, All government contractors are funded by the government. Private schools that participate in school voucher programs, like the one that my children go to, my Catholic school that my kids go to in in Indiana, in South Indiana, about a third of the kids in my kids' school, I think at last count, receive some money from the government. That doesn't make St. Joe Grade School a government school. It doesn't make St. Joe Grade School a public school. So the court has made, the Supreme Court has made clear that just receiving public funds doesn't make you a public entity. Really what is uh, legally important is the extent to which the government controls you such that you are a government entity. So that is there enough control over you and what you do um, to make you, to make your actions those of the government? Are you a government agent? And Nicole, Uh, if I could just pause you for a moment here, in in constitutional law, the phrase state actor is commonly used, right? If you're, if you're a state actor, then you're subject to, you know, the, the, the constraints exist on the government. That's exactly right. Right. And it's confusing because we use in, in the United States, the terms, 
public means government schools. I mean, most of us went to public schools. I went to public school, and that meant they were run by the government. Um, but for constitutional purposes, the, the technical question is, are you a state actor? And that just means what I just said. Is the government controlling you enough such that your actions are really the government's actions? The, the, the interesting thing about charter schools is not only their actions are controlled by this contract that I talked about, the charter. Also, most states waive most education regulations for charter schools. They're not subject to teacher hiring requirements. They don't have to hire certified teachers. They, they're not subject to the curricular requirements that traditional public schools um, uh, uh, have to follow. They're not, they don't have to, their teachers don't have to be unionized. Um, so there's lots of freedom. And that the real question in, that I tackle in my paper is, is there enough freedom that they're not, as you say, state actors, that they're really not government? The reason that matters is because the Supreme Court has made clear that public schools, government schools, must be secular. But private schools that receive public funds need not. So that, that's what I'm trying to untangle in the report. And so, and so one question you ask in your, in your report, Nicole, is there's two questions. Number one, are religious charter schools legally permissible? And that's really what we've been talking about so far. But then you ask the second question, if so, are they, is it in fact constitutionally required? Uh, elaborate right. on that for a moment, if you would. Yeah, so um, this is a really important question that extends far beyond, honestly, uh, the question of charter schools and even the question of education. Um, so the, the, the free exercise question that you're highlighting, so the, the, the First Amendment of the United States Constitution has two religion clauses. One is um, the Establishment Clause, which says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And that's what requires government entities to be secular. That is, that's what the Supreme Court has said. But the Free Exercise Clause prohibits discrimination against religion and religious entities. So in the Supreme Court in June, uh, handed down an incredibly important decision. Um, that decision is called Espinoza versus Montana. Uh, in that case, uh, Montana had effectively um, pre- re- refused to allow religious schools to participate in the private school choice program. They had a modest tax credit that enabled some children that were disadvantaged to go to private schools in Montana, uh, including religious schools. The Montana said, that's not, we can't do that under our constitution, that Montana law doesn't permit any money whatsoever to ever go to private religious schools. Private schools are fine as long as they're secular, but not private religious schools. And what the Supreme Court said in Espinoza is that is actually a constitutional violation because it singles out religious schools, in this case, for disfavor. It's, it's discrimination against religious institutions. Um, and so the, the court says you do not have to subsidize public private education, but once you do, you can't just discriminate against schools because they're religious. That is itself a free exercise violation because it's religious discrimination. So the second half of the paper, the first half describe, sort of tackles the issue, can charter schools be religious? The second half is, if they can be, must the state permit them to be for the same reason that um, the Supreme Court said it's unconstitutional to exclude private religious schools from, from school choice programs. And um, this is a really big issue because... Uh, there are lots of states that do discriminate against religious schools. They discriminate against religious social service providers. And so this will have – this Espinoza case actually is a, has broader implications far beyond just the education question. Nicole, we've got just a minute left. I do want to raise one question, though. When we talk about religion, of course, that encompasses all religions. I'm here in Minnesota, and, and there was a charter school in Minnesota that was set up by – 
uh, some, you know, Muslim uh, teachers and parents. And it was named after the general who mostly conquered Spain. And and it came to light that it was operating really like a madrasa. You know, I mean, it was it was definitely doing Islamic uh, education actually got shut down. Uh, when that came to light. Quick comment on that. I mean, if we say religious schools, that's going to mean all religions, right? Oh, of course, right. And, and of course, it would be unconstitutional to discriminate against any uh, school uh, because of what religion it is. Um, I'm very familiar with that case. I, I actually don't think it was operating as a madrasa, but um, they did have, uh, were releasing kids for prayer during the day. Um, and uh, so it is, of course, the case that the free exercise clause mandate of non-discrimination applies to all religions. That doesn't mean that the schools can't be regulated. It doesn't mean that the state can't say, you know, you, you can't be uh, teach certain things that would be dangerous. Um, but you certainly could not, discri- no state can discriminate against a religious school or any religious entity because of the religion that it is. That is 100% unconstitutional. Okay, thank you very much for being with us, Nicole Garnett. We're going to go to a okay, break now. thank you. This portion is sponsored by the American Federation for Children, the nation's largest school choice advocacy organization, helping every family choose the best K-12 education for their children. Find them on social media at School Choice Now. That's at School Choice Now. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show on the salem radio network we are joined now by eric hargan Deputy Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. And Eric is here to talk to us about President uh, Trump and his administration's plans for the vaccine, uh, which is going to be rolled out very shortly. Eric, thanks for being on the program. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks, Dan. So, so Eric, um, uh, let, let's just start with the basics. You know, a lot of people have been waiting for a while for this vaccine. When is it coming? How many doses? What's the plan? So, um I am actually right now watching the live stream of the advisory committee for the vaccine uh, that's being uh, that's being talked about right now that we have sort of all day. Actually, if anybody wants to watch, you can go to FDA.gov and watch it. Uh, it'll be recorded as well so people can look at it afterwards. Uh, this is the uh, advisory committee meeting that's going to take place. They're going to make their, their recommendations to FDA uh, at the end of today, uh, we believe, and then FDA is going to take that under consideration, we think, in the next few days. Um, at, at, next few days, and I mean that not weeks, but days, uh, they'll issue their um, authorization, hopefully, when they, if they see that there's no safety or efficacy issues. And I think they just signaled yesterday that they did, hadn't seen anything so far. Um, then we'll be moving to roll the vaccine out really within 24 to 48 hours after we get that, uh, that sign from FDA. So it sounds like we're talking about days, not weeks. Is that fair? Correct. That's fair. Yeah. Days, not weeks, without some substantial hitch that we are we haven't seen anywhere so far. We're we're good to go. I think we're ready. We're ready to distribute. We have millions of doses already manufactured uh, and ready uh, to send out. So obviously, this is a huge project, right? You said millions of doses, but let's let's talk about that a little bit more. I mean, 
you know, how, how many doses initially are going to go out and how are they going to be prioritized? So, you know, we are looking right now, we have about, we have under 10 million, I think around 6 million doses of that in hand right now. So we, now how they're prioritized, some of that is going to depend on the states. Uh, the states have really, uh, we're looking to them to look at the, the prioritization that we have laid out from CDC, uh, which is essentially the very first is um, skilled nursing facilities and assisted living residents and staff, because that has been where the greatest amounts of mortality has been happening all along, really from the very beginning. Uh, that's where we've seen the greatest impact of this of this disease, uh, the greatest amount of, of deaths. So that's the priority first. That's going to be done through the normal channels will be through CVS and Walgreens. So the pharmacy chains are going to be handling the distribution of that to um, skilled nursing facilities and assisted living nursing homes. Uh, then the states have given us uh, lists of places to distribute to in the states, and those are going to go out uh, via UPS and FedEx. The vaccines for those non-nursing home sites are going to go out through the state um, state lists that we've collected already. So this is really interesting, Eric. So so obviously the states are playing a key role here. Are, are you dividing up the, the, the doses that are initially available, like, you know, per capita among the states, or, or how is that working? Yes, it's being done per capita by the states. Uh, so, you know, this really is a vaccination program. It's preventative, so it's done per capita. This isn't one of those things where we're treating somebody who's already sick, where you might look at something like disease burden, uh, you know, th that varies over time. This is really preventative, so we're doing it by population, yes. Now, I know that there are two vaccines that that have been in, in development. Um, one is uh, Pfizer and the other is what, Moderna? Am I saying that right? Yes, yeah, Moderna. Yep, that's exactly and, and, right. Those are the two it, that are at the most advanced stage. And, and and is it are you are you going to be distributing both of them here in a matter of days or just one of them or or what? Well, you know, I guess it's going to depend on nomenclature. We're meeting; they're meeting today on Pfizer. A week from now is the scheduled meeting for the Moderna vaccine, so it's one week behind uh, in terms of the sort of research development advisory process. Uh, the question will be. You know, Moderna might have differing manufacturing capacity if they have. We might end up with manufacturing of Moderna being able to catch up uh, to Pfizer. It just depends on on how well they can spin up a further manufacturing capacity for that company. So it's one week behind in terms of the advisory process, the regulatory process here at HHS and FDA. Uh, then we have uh, other vaccine candidates that are actually uh, in late stage clinical trials as well. We've got two more, AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson product are both in late-stage clinical trials. So we could see uh, those other two as we sort of progress through uh, into January and, and in the months to come, we could see more vaccines for, for COVID-19 come online along with the associated manufacturing capacity of those two uh, large companies. Now, when you say you've got millions of doses already produced and on hand, are they a combination of Pfizer and Moderna or, or just one of the companies? Well, no, both both have been producing. That was kind of the idea about warp speed. One of the fundamental ways in which we were able to shorten time, uh, as you know, the president had had uh, had asked for, is that we um, we built out the manufacturing capacity as well as the distribution system at the same time that we were working on research and development at the company level. So we were supporting sort of a, a parallel development. Normally, you'd see it go in order. You'd see first 
R&D, then manufacturing, then distribution system build out one after another. Instead, we did it simultaneously because it's a national emergency. We did them simultaneously, uh, and now we've, that has helped save all this time because we actually have the vaccine, millions of doses in hand right now. We have a, a large number of Pfizer and some Moderna. Uh, you know, obviously, Moderna has been uh, has sort of a little bit behind Pfizer and, you know, a week behind in, in the administrative process. And so we'll see uh, we'll see how many doses Moderna is able to sort of step up further than they already have uh, in terms of their manufacturing. Yeah, that's interesting. So we'll it's kind of like uh, we it, it's kind of like fast track construction, you know, when you're proceeding on multiple paths simultaneously. Does the administration perceive any significant difference between these two vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna? Are they essentially interchangeable or are there some, some biological differences? Well, no, they're, they're both using uh, technology, messenger RNA technology. Uh, so they're, they're similar kinds of technology and they're different than the other sort of four or five, however you count them, that we're supporting um, out of the out of HHS and the administration, so they're 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 the same similar kinds of technology. They're different in the sense that you can't kind of swap them out. You really the person who gets the Pfizer first dose needs to get the Pfizer second dose. You get the Moderna first dose, you get the Moderna second dose. You can just don't kind of swap them out. That's going to be a tricky thing, I think, for patients and providers to make sure that they follow up in the right uh, order. Uh, and that, you know, one is three-week gap, that's Pfizer, and one is a four-week gap between the doses, Moderna. So there's a, they're a little bit different in that way, uh, just through, you know, the normal variation between products. Uh, the others, the other uh, vaccines are, are different technologies, uh, basic technologies, uh, including some pretty sort of old technologies that we normally do for vaccines, but those are much slower. So uh, we were able to kind of do a lot of creative thinking, mostly about contracting, advanced purchasing, and those kinds of things that uh, that have helped us prepare these shortcuts. So American people, I know everyone, a lot of people are nervous about vaccines or they're nervous about the fact that it was quick, but most of the savings and time have been done through this process of parallel development between the sort of three big parts of vaccine development. All right, we're going to run to a break, and we will be back with more with uh, Eric uh, Hargan. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Croft Show. We are talking with Eric Hargan, Deputy Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, about Operation Warp Speed and the federal government's uh, rollout of uh, the anti-COVID-19 vaccine. Eric, I want to talk a little bit about some of the concerns that some people have had about about the about the vaccine, starting with a news story uh Within the last couple of days, I, I believe I'm saying this correctly, that one of these two vaccines, Pfizer or Moderna, was found to produce an allergic reaction in some people. Am I saying that right? Well, yeah, this is the report from Britain that two people who had who had 
taken the vaccine. You know, they're starting to roll it out in Britain, Great Britain, and both Great Britain and Canada have authorized this vaccine in their own countries. They had two people who reported an allergic reaction, and the, and the British prudently said anyone who has a serious allergic reaction shouldn't, who has prone to those, shouldn't take the vaccine. That's prudent. I would say we have had a very large study, uh, over 42,000 people in this study, which is historically very large, a lot of oversight. Uh, we have seen uh, so if we see this appear, we haven't, we haven't seen this yet, but if we see it appear, obviously we would take a close look at that when we have the rollout. Um, but these are historically large. There's been a lot of oversight over these. I personally am planning on taking it. I'm on the board of Warp Speed and I'm showing my confidence in the uh, vaccine and the people that have been doing it. They, we've got large teams working on these things, lots of oversight. In fact, I was talking with one of the clinical trial investigators uh, fairly recently, and he said, He's done a lot of these, and he's never had the amount of oversight in his entire career that he's had over the clinical trials that he has worked on on these issues and these and this vaccine. Uh, so, so, so the bottom line been, of that, Eric, it seems to me, is people shouldn't be worried that because this development has been fast, you know, warp speed, that doesn't mean it's been slipshod or that corners have been cut in terms of safety. No. Uh, in fact, the, as I say, these are historically large vaccine trials. They've been subjected to... In looking at my experience, they've had more uh, oversight than is typical because there's been back and forth between the companies and the regulators all along. So instead of there being kind of like pauses and breaks and, you know, here's the data and we bring it to you after a period of time, really there's been a lot more back and forth between the agency and the companies and the researchers. So there's a lot more there's a lot more scrutiny on the data than you would you would normally see. In fact, you could see you could look back and look at the fact that we paused the trials for the AstraZeneca vaccine for weeks over two adverse event reports that we had before allowing them to go forward. We have a pretty rigorous attitude towards safety within the United States government here. So we see anything like that, there's going to be a pause on this as well, or the same kinds of warnings that Great Britain put out on getting these two allergic reactions. They have followed up and, you know, they said, you know, it's, they don't know whether it was, it could have been an allergy from other things that the people had. It could have just, you know, they're going to do, they're doing a nationwide rollout themselves as we are planning. So we'll, we will see, but we're going to keep a close eye on it as we roll these things out in the coming days and weeks. You know, Eric, another question I think a lot of people are wondering about is how much protection will these vaccines give? I mean, there are some vaccines, I think measles is like this, where, you know, if, I mean, if you have measles once, you never have it again, right? And, and some vaccines are good for life. Others obviously are not. You know, how much protection do we think these vaccines are going to give us? Well, right up front, you know, we've seen signs that the, the two-dose regimen is looking at 94 95% effectiveness across the population, which is great. I mean, that's a really high number. Uh, but that's what we've seen in comparing the two arms of the trial. Uh, the first dose preliminary is that it gives you a pretty great uh, protection against the vaccine. Now, long term, we'll have to look at it long term. You don't really know necessarily long term protection except by looking at it in the long term. That's one thing. So I don't want to be too sort of disingenuous about that. But long term efficacy is dependent on us looking at it over long term. Not being a smart aleck there. I'm just that's that's kind of the nature of these things. Some of it's going to depend on the nature of the coronavirus itself. We have been watching whether or not the virus is mutating. So we've been sort of keep dipping into the viral sequence and sort of pulling it out and seeing whether it's changing over time in any relevant way. Uh, it's coronavirus is the family of the common colds and a lot of other things. So you might think there's going to be a lot of changes to it. So far, not. Uh, these vaccines have continued to be 
uh, has show efficacy against the virus even months later as we move through here. So it's not, uh, it doesn't seem to be doing things that we might expect out of influenza or the annual flu in the sense that it's mutating and people just have to keep getting it or we'd have to change it over time. So, so far so good. It seemed to be a fairly stable virus uh, relevantly for our vaccine. So we'll just have to see what the long-term effects and the, you know, whether people need boosters, you know, some of these vaccines, you need boosters over time. Uh, and we'll see what if herd immunity is established, how long COVID-19 lingers uh, in the population, if at all. Uh, it could be that, you know, this, 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 this virus won't linger any more than annual influenza lingers into the next year. We'll All right, we'll leave it there. Eric Hargan, uh, Deputy Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, thanks for being on the program. Thank you, John. Listen, the more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Dan tonight. I want to talk about uh, a couple of headlines in the news that seem to me to be uh, very closely related. The first uh, comes from just yesterday, and I'm looking here at the New York Post, but the headline is, YouTube bans videos claiming 2020 presidential election fraud. Now, later in the show, we're going to have a guest on who's going to talk a lot about the evidence uh, that there was, in fact, significant fraud and irregularity during, during this year's election. I don't think there's any serious doubt about that. Now, you can debate whether whether that swung the election to Joe Biden, I think that's debatable. But the fact that there was significant fraud, I think, is is not debatable. I think the fact that the mail-in ballot system was just riddled with uh, irregularities is, is really not debatable. And yet YouTube uh, doesn't want us debating it. They are banning videos claiming uh, fraud in the 2020 presidential election. But they're not the only ones. Facebook, too, is trying to squash all discussion of, of voter fraud. And in fact, you know, Facebook put this year uh, put in a ban on political ads for I think it was the week prior to the election. And they define political ads very broadly, not just ads advocating or attacking candidates, but issue ads, you know, ads talking about a particular issue. They call all that political and they didn't allow any new political ads for a week before the election. But what was really surprising about that is that they continued the ban on political ads. And again, that includes policy ads, for example, talking about voter fraud after the election. I believe it's still in place. I think they're now talking about removing the ban, you know, sometime in the near future. But it seems blindingly obvious to me that the reason why Facebook maintained that ban for Weeks after the election was specifically because they didn't want people talking about voter fraud. And if you talk about voter fraud on Facebook, you know, you're you're probably going to get censored. And so we have this this incredible situation where the the social media outlets that are used uh, more than anything else by by more people to talk about politics and not just politics, but, you know, current events Um those those venues are incredibly biased uh, and they're biased in favor of the Democratic Party. 
And 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 to some extent, they're certainly biased in favor of leftism. You know, the the left wing uh, shibboleths of the day that tend to be popular in Silicon Valley. But but I think I think even more than ideology, the bias that you see is simply in favor of the Democratic Party. And we all know about the problem. We all know that it's a huge problem. And the real question is what to do about the problem. If 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 like like us, we're conservatives, and and so. The second headline I want to I want to weave into this this conversation. Uh, this one is coming from National Review. Uh, feds and states sue to break up Facebook. And what's happened here again, just within the last uh, day or so, is that the Federal Trade Commission and forty eight state attorneys general. Think about that. Forty eight states have joined in this lawsuit. It is an antitrust case against. Facebook filed just yesterday. And what this lawsuit seeks is a partial breakup of Facebook. And the lawsuit, uh, as you'd expect, accuses Facebook of various anti-competitive practices and, uh, and of monopolizing um, the, the social media uh, network, however that's defined, where, where Facebook ostensibly um, Competes, and I think the, the the key elements of this lawsuit. I haven't read the complaint. I've just read news stories about it. But I think the key elements of this lawsuit have to do with Facebook's acquisition of Instagram and WhatsApp. Uh, Facebook bought Instagram a couple of years ago for a billion dollars, and uh, it's a really interesting acquisition because historically Instagram was was basically a picture sharing network. And it's the only social media platform that I actually use. I actually have an account. I put up pretty pictures, and I like to look at other people's pretty pictures. You know, I follow museums and whatnot. And that's historically what what uh, Instagram has been. But now Instagram stories, which are videos and sometimes they're just a sequence of still still photographs, are a very prominent part of the website, a very prominent and growing part of the website. And and people are doing more and more um, political and social commentary on Instagram. And it has really become one of the principal alternatives to Facebook. If you want to say what you think about what's going on, well, Instagram is is uh, is is, I would say, the number one alternative currently to, to Facebook. Well, if you look at a post by uh, Donald Trump and everything he tweets, he also puts on Instagram. If you put, if you look at any Instagram post that Trump does, underneath it there will be a legend that says that Joe Biden won the election. And to learn more, you know, go here with a link. So you can't even, you know, he can't even congratulate the U.S. Marines on their birthday without, without Instagram telling you Joe Biden won the election. You know, don't believe anything to the contrary. And so. And so my, my point is, uh, is there an effective remedy here? I, I, I think it makes sense that Facebook should have to divest uh, Instagram. I don't know much about WhatsApp. I've used it years ago. What, last I knew, it was only a messaging application. I think it's, it's grown since then. But I certainly don't think that Facebook ought to get away with buying what seems to me to be its main rival. But, but the real concern that I've got is, is has to do with what economists call network effects. And that is the fact that there are things that are valuable by virtue of the fact that other people are using those things. And I think the social media platforms are a perfect example of network effects. There used to be Facebook and MySpace. Now there's just Facebook. Well, why is that? Because 
a large part of the value of Facebook comes from the fact that everybody's on it. Same with Twitter. If you want to try to find an old high school classmate, you don't have to go to six different platforms. You know, if he's on anything, he's on Facebook. And so, and so I think if some people say, well, let's break Facebook up into six different companies. Well, you could maybe do that. My concern is that if you give it a year or two, the six are going to coalesce into one because network effects may make outlets like Facebook and, and Twitter natural monopolies. And the way we usually deal with natural monopolies like the water company or the electric company uh, or the sewer company or whatever is, is by regulating them as utilities. That's the way that, that economic situation is usually handled. But we are a long way away from doing anything remotely like that with, uh, with the social media uh, giants. And they remain a huge problem in terms of our freedom of speech. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. In this uh, short segment before the top of the hour, I want to start by playing just a brief clip of Joe Biden introducing one of his cabinet nominees. And this is the guy he's nominating to be the uh, secretary of health and human services. The clip is only 11 seconds long, and yet it's remarkable how many errors Joe Biden can cram into it. Let's play the clip. And I'm grateful to the members of my COVID team that I'd like to introduce to you now who will lead the way. I'm really proud of this group. For Secretary of Health and Education, I nominate Javier Bacaria. Okay. All right. Now, if you listen carefully to that, let's, let's do this. Let, let's, let's just play that. Let's just play that tape. It's only like 11 seconds long. Let's play it one more time. Listen carefully and, and, um, and see if we could spot all the errors. And I'm grateful to the members of my COVID team that I'd like to introduce to you now who will lead the way. I'm really proud of this group. For Secretary of Health and Education, I nominate Javier Bacaria. You know, right. Javier Bashera, excuse me. There we go. Currently, the Attorney General of California, leading the second largest Justice Department in America. That's enough. That's enough. That's enough. All right. So in that brief clip, there's several things going on there. Number one, Joe Biden doesn't apparently know the name of his own uh, huge department of the federal bureaucracy. It's Health and Human Services. And he doesn't uh, he doesn't say that name of the department correctly. Secondly, he 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 doesn't know how to pronounce the name of his own nominee. And apparently he had something in his ear or else maybe it was uh, on the teleprompter and somebody told him that he'd mispronounced the name and he had to come back and 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 say the name again. But the one that to me is the most striking is he gets halfway through the name of the department, which he's not doing correctly. And a sound comes out of his mouth that is not a word. It's just all of a sudden there's this kind of salad of sound. And and we've been seeing this more and more uh, from Joe Biden as time has 
has gone by and it, it's really striking. You know, he'll be talking all of a sudden there's noise, but it's not, it's not coherent words. And I wonder, you know, when this man has to um, give an inaugural address or, or a state of the union speech, I mean, it's going to be something to see. And I think that a lot of people who voted for Joe Biden as they start to, as he comes out of his basement, inevitably, and they start seeing more of him are going to be a little bit shocked at, uh, at what they're actually seeing. We will be back with more on the Dan Proft Show after these messages. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Patrick Basham, founding director of the Democracy Institute, a Washington and London-based uh, independent research organization. Patrick, thanks for being on the program. Oh, my great pleasure, John. Thank you for having me. You've got a piece at the Epic Times, uh, and, the, and the headline is Overwhelming Evidence of Outcome-Altering Voting Irregularities. And, you know, we're living in this just bizarre moment, Patrick, when when everybody knows that, that there was a lot of funky stuff going on in this election, yeah. but we're not supposed to talk about it. You know, YouTube has announced they're banning any video yeah. that questions, uh-huh. you know, anything about this election. Facebook is going around trying to stamp out any references to uh, to voter fraud. Um, what, what do you make of that? It's It's really quite surreal. I mean, in terms of uh, a personal professional reaction i feel like you know I, I went to bed in america and woke up in the soviet union you know i mean it just it's i mean freedom of speech has been uh under siege at, i would say for some time but now i mean this is really really scary stuff and there's two things that come to mind too in terms of what uh, big tech seems to be doing um you know one is that if they um, I think it I think it reflects the fact that they know that a lot of fraud happened, and they do not want people to talk about it, at least not yet. I mean, I think if and when Biden is inaugurated after that, I think they'll be all for free speech and all for you know public discourse on this important issue so that next time we get it right. Uh, the important things we don't get it right this time because their guy needs to become you know, the next president. The other thing is, and I say this also about the Democrats in general, as well as big tech, is the Biden campaign assures us, as big tech does, that there was no fraud. And if there was fraud, it didn't make any difference. Okay. So why then would they want the fullest, most comprehensive, most detailed examination to confirm that? Because right now, the media polls tell us that at least half of the country uh, thinks the election was stolen from Trump. That guarantees that Biden will have four years along the lines that Trump did, you know, where there's this cloud over him, and at least half the country thinks he's an illegitimate president. 
they know there was no fraud and the election wasn't stolen. So let's let's all get together, all wrap our arms around this, and prove conclusively that they're right. And then the whole country, half the country will say, well, we're disappointed our guy lost, but at least it was fair and square. And the other half of the country will be thrilled that Biden, well, not, no one's thrilled Biden's president, but they will at least be relieved that Trump isn't president anymore. And so it just seems to me that it speaks volumes. The fact they don't want us to speak about this stuff speaks volumes to how insecure they are about the actual situation on the ground. In your piece in the Epic Times, you go through, you don't itemize all the evidence by any means of significant voter fraud in this election, but you walk through quite a bit of it on kind of a state-by-state basis. Let's just do that. Uh, You know, you do this in alphabetical order. Let's just start with Arizona. Yeah, sure. I mean, I I looked at the respective hearings and the lawsuits and all of this and tried to highlight some of the things that I think really stand out. We have to remember that in Arizona, Joe Biden's lead is about 10,500 votes, according to the quote-unquote official count. So it doesn't take much to change that, should there be either illegal ballots or fraud or whatever it might be. Um, And one of the witnesses at the state legislative hearing, you know, it's a formal hearing, one of the sworn witnesses, and we have to remember these witnesses swear swear, either submit affidavits or appear as witnesses in public, um, sworn testimony under penalty of perjury. Right. And it is very serious. These are, these are ordinary people in the main, some of them Democrats, taking a very risky, courageous step, very risky step for them personally and professionally with no upside, really no upside at all. So one witness at the hearing testified to multiple trucks of ballots arriving at the counts or the, the, the building where the count had taken place for 10 days after the election. And she kept checking with her supervisors as to why this was happening and never got an answer. And she said, well, how long is this going to go on for? And they said, we don't know. (laughs) I mean, how can an election in 2020 in America in a sophisticated state such as Arizona uh, have this sort of irregularity after the election is supposedly over, right? The... There, it's, it's amazing that the court actually ordered that they do statistically significant samples of mail-in ballots to see uh, whether there were matches and see whether there was any reason to go forward with larger uh, samples, larger audits. And they found that 11% of this small but statistically significant sample of accepted ballots should not have been accepted. They, for one reason or another, did not match. 11%. Now, now your listeners may think, well, 11% is not nothing, but, I mean, it's not everything, is it? Well, actually, in Arizona, it was everything, because that percentage, if you extrapolate that out, which you can, because it's a significant enough sample, that's 30 times more illegal ballots than Biden's lead of 10,500 votes. Let me just stop you there for a second, Patrick, because, you know, as long as there's been such a thing as absentee or mail-in voting, everybody has agreed, Democrats, Republicans, it's not a partisan thing. Everybody has agreed that mail-in votes have a significantly greater potential for fraud than voting Mm -hmm. in person. That's never been questioned. And, And to me, the number one fact about this election is that there was all this encouragement. Don't show up at the polls. You know, vote by mail. And I think over 100 million ballots came in by mail. And I don't think anyone has any idea how many of those were, in fact, fraudulent. Uh, No. I mean, there are some very bright people doing some very heavy lifting in an analytical and data-driven sense who are 
uh, attempting to narrow it down, right? I was just listening this morning uh, to a podcast where there are some uh, very smart people in Switzerland who, who don't have a dog in this fight, but have been looking at the data in Pennsylvania in terms of absentee and mail-in ballots, where they came from. And they think that at this point, at least 25 to 30% need to be revisited of the total. I mean, we're talking about several hundred thousand, a few hundred thousand votes by their estimate at least need to be looked at. And are almost certain, they are suspect now, and they're almost certainly illegal, right? I mean, this is a very serious issue. And one of the ironies, I mean, looping back to your introduction and, and, and our discussion about big tech and the media censorship, it was, I think it was 2012 when the New York Times had a major piece in which they interviewed all of the experts on the, in this area, and they all said, mail-in ballots, I mean, that's a nightmare waiting to happen, right? <laughs> it used to be the liberals and the Democrats who worried about this stuff because for various reasons, Republicans tended to dominate absentee voting. And that obviously has changed by accident and very much by design. And suddenly all of those concerns, the concerns that uh, former President Carter in his uh, report uh, more than more than a decade ago raised about voter fraud and the potential for um, mail-in ballots and absentee ballots to be especially problematic, all of that stuff that we had learned, we were educated by our betters to be on the lookout for, none of that is to be worried about now. Because I assume because the election has, quote unquote, gone the right way, the correct way. And so those concerns are not just immaterial and irrelevant, but they're actually conspiratorial. You're not only a uh, you're, not, you're not only a confused person for raising these concerns. You're actually a bad person because you have ulterior bad motives. You must be because you simply are not parroting, you know, what our betters have told us is the talking point of the day, which is Biden won big and he won fair and square and, and everyone who disagrees, you know, has some uh, some ill motive for arguing against that. Patrick, we've got about a minute and a half before the break. Let's move on to Georgia. Georgia has been very much in the in the news lately. Well, what's the evidence on voter fraud there? Well, the most uh, the visual evidence, which your listeners hopefully have seen, is uh, what happened on election night in Atlanta at, at the major count center with the Republic uh, at about 1030 in the evening. The Republican poll watchers were told the counting stopped. You can go home. Off you go. And then around 11, um, four poll, poll workers stayed with a supervisor and they lifted the skirts or the curtains on the tables in the room, pulled out a few suitcases. They turned out to be full of boxes of ballots and they started counting again and the tens of thousands of ballots were counted. Um, and we see this massive dump of ballots almost exclusively for Joe Biden um, at the conclusion of that period. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely staggering. And what we know, Biden has a lead of only 12,670 votes. We know that over 66,000 teenagers, underage teenagers, voting. It we're is, up against a hard break, Patrick, so we got to leave it there for the moment. But we're going to come back uh, with more with uh, pa Patrick Masham after these messages. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
We are back now with Patrick Basham, and we're talking about the 2020 presidential election and whether, contrary to what people keep telling us, there was, in fact, a lot of fraud, a lot of irregularity in that election. Patrick, we've been talking about a couple of states. Let's move on to Michigan. And the place Uh where I want to start here is I believe Michigan was one of several states, three or four at least, where in the middle of the night, after counting supposedly had been suspended for a while, all of a sudden there is a dump of, you know, maybe 100,000, 150,000, something like that, ballots, all of a sudden being tabulated kind of simultaneously with an absurd percentage, 99.2 or something for Joe Biden. Now, am I right about that? Is that something that happened in, in Michigan and other states? Oh, yes. Uh, Michigan and across these swing states, there are, in each state, there's at least one example, one confirmed example of these ridiculously high uh, volume of, of ballots that came in in the middle of the night uh, for Joe Biden. And what's I say, that came in, and the ratio is incredible. They are 95, 99, in some cases 100% for Joe Biden. I mean, in Michigan, for example, we have, there are three witnesses who testified at the state Senate uh, hearing on the 2nd of December. And they all attested that on the morning after the election, about 4.30 a.m., a truck arrives at the rear of their polling station basement. And there were garbage cans in the, in the truck. And there were about 100,000 ballots in those garbage cans. And guess which candidate got most of those votes, right? I mean, <laughs> this stuff... You, you literally, you know, you cannot make it up. Uh, and you have this situation where, and this happened in more than one state, where there, these huge piles of ballots were found, abs- quote-unquote absentee ballots, mail-in ballots. And these are all, there's two things to note about them. One is they are perfectly pristine. And why that's important is that a mail-in ballot, it, you, have to, you have to sign it and you have to fold it so it's creased put it back in an envelope, sign it, send it back. All to say, when it comes back to the count, it is not pristine with the best will in the world. Secondly, most of them, many of them, were only filled out for the presidential election, not down ballot. Now, sure, there are people who don't vote down ballot, but to get tens, hundreds, thousands of votes in the same pile that are all filled out perfectly, but only for one candidate in one race, pristine. I mean, it defies logic, plausibility, that this kind of large dumping of ballots, uh, there wasn't some kind of coordinated effort to change the numbers. So so um, one thing I'm not clear on, I'm not sure if you know the answer to this question, Patrick, but when, when we see these big dumps in the middle of the night, is that, you know, is that a truck coming in with 100,000, you know, physical paper ballots and garbage cans? Is that somebody going on a computer and just kind of hitting the button and saying, you know, 90,000 votes for Joe Biden? I mean, how do we know exactly what's behind those dumps? In this in terms of this election, it appears to be all of the above. We have we have witnesses on 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 trucks. We have witnesses on vans where they say it looked like a drug deal, the way that the ballots were coming in. Uh, we have the, the video evidence of the ballots in the suitcases under the table. And we also have, we have um, someone actually from you know, Dominion Voting Systems, which is the machinery in a num- not all, but in a number of these states, a number of these cities in question, is actually a, um, someone who is contracted by them 
in Michigan, she testified that the batches of ballots that came into where she was counting, the, they would scan them eight to ten times, the same ballot, right? You do that for an hour, that's a lot of extra ballots, that's a lot of extra votes. You times that by however many, you know, was necessary, right? It's, um, it's, so it's, it's a variety of techniques, and, of course, you do this with mainly absentee and mail-in ballots, and it's very clever because this is how they get mixed in to the, to, to, to the, to the batch, to the pool of votes almost right away. So then, even if you know there's a problem, how do you find those ballots? How do you only get rid of those ballots? This is all part of the chess match that was played by those wanting to commit these, these acts so that even if people knew there was something up and this thing didn't smell right, it's very difficult to prove it and especially to prove the exact precise number of illegal or fraudulent votes. Yeah, you know, I think one of the big problems here is that the very same lax procedures that allow the fraudulent voting in the first place also make it very difficult to go back after the fact and identify yeah. the fraudulent ballots. This is right. This is why, whether it's uh, Trump campaign lawsuits um, or I think probably this Texas case before the Supreme Court, is that they're, uh, they're not saying, in, in either case, they're not saying... Although we think there were this many fraudulent ballots, we want you to take that number out. They're saying that what it means is that it means the election cannot be um, certified because we cannot, we know the, the vote is not correct. So the court needs to not pick a winner, but may, merely rule that the winner as declared cannot be confirmed. And therefore, we need to sort of void that and move it on to another body that actually has the constitutional authority to, to pick the winner, in effect. Uh, because you cannot, you can, you can, if you can prove to a, to, down to a, a single ballot that X number were illegal and or fraudulent, it's still impossible to say, so therefore take off so many votes because you cannot find those precise ballots, not in the quantities that you, uh, that you identified as being uh, invalid. We've got about two minutes left, uh, Patrick, and I want to talk a little bit about Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has been right. one of the states that's got a lot of attention. What do we know about irregularities in that state? Well, uh, the Trump team, they maintain that there are almost 850,000 votes that were entered with no observation. Now, that doesn't mean that every single one of those was illegal or fraudulent, but what it does mean is that if you don't have observers watching, then it, it, it's a legal ballot because it breaks the rules. And that is, you know, many, many, many times uh, Biden's lead. And then, of course, we have um, this whistle, whistleblower, the gentleman, the truck driver, who drove the truck from uh, Long Island, New York, to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, with a couple hundred thousand ballots that disappeared along with his trailer. Um, and a lot of us are wondering, why did a couple hundred thousand completed ballots start in Long Island, headed for Pennsylvania? And if there was a good reason, where are they now and where's the trailer that they came in? Uh, one hopes that this sort of thing is being investigated. But these, these numbers are such, and the credibility of the witnesses and the whistleblowers are such, surely in the United States of America in 2020, 
this, we were told this election was the most important in our history, and therefore perhaps in the entire history of the world. We can take a hit the pause button and find out what happened and what it means for the eventual outcome. Patrick Basham, thank you very much for being with us, and we are going to uh, go to some commercials and be back after these messages. And you'll have to deal with Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are joined now by Walter Block. Walter holds the Harold E. Worth Eminent Scholar Endowed Chair in Economics at the J.A. Butt School of Business at Loyola University in New Orleans and is a senior fellow of the Ludwig von Mises Institute. Walter, thanks for being on the program. My pleasure. Good to be with you. You've got a piece at Real Clear Markets, uh, a, a, a brand new piece that I think is really important for the time that we're living in right now. The headline on the piece is Freedom of Choice Doesn't Lose Its Luster during pandemics. So tell our, our, our listeners what that's all about. You know, we, we have two issues. There are two sides to this story. On the one hand, uh, is the pandemic like a typhoid Mary? Is it a, a deadly disease? And if so, um, the Constitution is not a, um, what do you call it, a, um, uh, a suicide pact. And we don't want to allow people to, you know, kill each other. On the other hand, uh, we've been at this for eight or ten months. Certain things have arisen, namely that young people are just not in danger. Uh, the flu is more of a danger or equally dangerous um, uh, for young people. The people who are vulnerable are mainly uh, people 70 years old, and if they have some other disease like uh, diabetes or cancer or overweight or um, blood pressure problems, uh, things like that. So I, I think that the, the government has gone way over uh, the pendulum is swung too far way over the other way where they try to shut down everything. It seems to me that good public policy is not to just reduce COVID deaths, of which there are very, very few, except for vulnerable and aged people, uh, that is, uh, uh, aged and vulnerable people uh, because of a, a debilitation. Uh, we don't want to just reduce COVID deaths. We want to reduce deaths. And if you, uh, you know, I, I think it was um, the governor of uh, New York, Cuomo, said that if we can save one life uh, from COVID by shutting down everything, it would be worth it. But no, because if you shut down everything, well, if you literally shut down everything, we all die uh, because you, there's no food. But uh, it, what, what he, he wasn't trying to say that, but he was trying to, he was saying, uh, you know, let's just look at COVID deaths. Uh, but what about heart attack? What about cancer? People aren't going to hospitals to uh, get their heart fixed or, or to get their cancer treatment. So what you want to do is minimize total deaths, not just COVID deaths. So I think the government has uh, swung the pendulum way too far the other way. But I acknowledge there is a pendulum because, you know, if, um, if COVID is as bad as we thought it was uh, last, uh, I don't know, February, March, well, then, you know, uh, 
something needs to be done. You just don't want to ignore it. Yeah, but let, let me raise this point, which I think is really fundamental. You mentioned typhoid Mary. Well, historically, and this is a part of the police power going back hundreds of years to deal with epidemics. This is this is nothing really new. But historically, they would quarantine Mary. You know, they didn't quarantine everybody. And we're now in this kind of bizarre world where, you know, it's not just sick people who are expected to walk around with masks on. You know, or 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 not get together with their family for Thanksgiving or Christmas. It's all of us, and there's just an extraordinary infringement on our freedom to to live normal lives. Oh yes, I I agree with you entirely. I think the the proper public policy, if anything, is to say, look, uh, old people and sick people, especially if you got both, uh, you should voluntarily uh, be careful. <laughs> you don't have to quarantine, but you should isolate yourself if you value your life. And if not, you know, get out there. But with regard to people in their 30s and their 20s and their teens, I mean, that's utterly ridiculous. On the other hand, we know a lot more about this disease now than we did in February or March. Uh, so I, I'm sort of excusing government for maybe overreacting then. But I, I think you're, you're quite right that that nowadays to to shut down the whole uh, kit and caboodle as um, as uh, what's his name um, Biden is now uh, proposing uh, what is it hundred days or three months of um, shutdown almost entirely I think is uh, way over in in the wrong direction. We just have a minute here before the break, but but I just want to you know make the point that the 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 totalitarian potential here is huge. You know, if if the hypothetical possibility that you might somehow contribute to a disease every single time you leave your house, I mean, literally, is enough to order you to stay home when you're perfectly healthy. I mean, we are way down the road to losing our freedoms, aren't we? Oh, yes, I I agree with you entirely. Uh, uh, This is um, uh, unfortunate and and, uh, a violation of rights. But I am a moderate on this issue. They don't call me Walter Moderate Block for nothing. What I'm trying to say is that theoretically, it could have been justified. And maybe it was justified in um, February and March. But now we've, we've gone a long way. We know a lot more about this situation. But what I hear you saying is that there's no even theoretical justification for it. But suppose that people who are asymptomatic uh, can spread the disease and, and the disease is just as horrible as, uh, as typhoid. Uh, so I'm making a, a very theoretical point. And I'm making a point that I think is uh, perhaps uh, viable for February, March, but certainly not now. All right. We're talking with Walter Block, and we will be back uh, with more with Walter Block right after these messages. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking with Walter Block, the uh, Harold Worth eminent scholar in economics at the J.A. Butt School of Business at Loyola University in New Orleans. And Walter, I want to move on now and talk about a really interesting piece that you've got at uh, Real Clear Markets. Uh, and it's a question I've wondered about for years, and I'm really delighted that, that somebody's writing about it. The headline on your piece is, Why Do We So Readily Kid Glove those who don't pay their rent. Tell our listeners what that's all about. Well, I uh, this is a puzzle. <clears throat> you know, uh, if you uh, shoplift, um, 
during uh, Christmas or during a pandemic, um, you know, they'll arrest you and they'll, I, I won't say they'll throw away the key, but they, they will arrest you. But if you don't pay your rent uh, during Christmas or during the pandemic, uh, all of a sudden uh, the kid gloves are out. And, you know, you're, you're a poor victim and the landlord is evil. And, you know, maybe it comes from those cartoons where the, where the, uh, the villain says, I've come for the rent, the rent, the rent. <laughs> and he's going to grab the pretty girl or something like that. Uh, the only other thing I can think of that we treat in this way is, is drugs. Like we, we do have um, uh, drug price controls that, um, well, they're not as uh, well established as, as the rent control. But uh, Donald Trump is trying to, you know, put the, a ceiling on, on um, um, uh, pharmaceutical uh, uh, drug prices. Uh, but we have rent control all over the place. Why don't we have uh, control over uh, chicken prices or Atlanta bean prices? Uh, it is strange, and uh, it's hard to explain exactly why it would be that way. And also, it's not just um, uh, uh, – it's only residential rentals. For example, if you um, own a store or you're renting a, um, a supermarket or you're renting a factory, uh, you don't pay your rent. Uh, they're going to come get you, and there's no kid gloves there. So, you know, maybe it's my, my house is my castle kind of thing. And, you know, even though I'm a, a tenant and it's not my house and you're the landlord, uh, still you're um, – uh, I can get away with a lot of stuff uh, that, that I uh, couldn't get away with. You know, if I stole a car or a bicycle or something, um, we know what would happen to me. I'm a criminal. Uh, you know, we have rent control. And also during Christmas, courts are very low to throw out anyone out of their house. So if you're a smart tenant, what you do is you stop paying rent around October. You don't pay November and you don't pay December. And by the time uh, you get to court, and it takes a while to get to court, the judge is going to say, oh, well, uh, give until January. So you got four months free rent, which you're not going to get four months free uh, car rental service or uh, taxi cab service or anything like that. So one problem is uh, why do we have it? The other issue is what are the effects of it? So there are two different issues. Well, that's right. And it's interesting because the, the, whole, the whole COVID situation, I think, has, has put some emphasis on this, you know, uh, you know, rent holiday kind of concept. But it actually goes back a long way. I mean, it's been true for a long time that if you don't pay your rent, you know, the landlord can't just kind of come and boot you out. He's got to go to court with an unlawful detainer proceeding. And while that's going on, you know, you're squatting uh, illegally, really, for free. Uh, in his building. And, uh, and a lot of tenants have learned how to play that game, you know, and get a lot of months of, uh, of free rent. And you're right, there's, there's nothing really like it uh, anywhere else in the economy. Yes, it is very strange. And, you know, uh, you sort of, your heart goes out to it. You know, the poor tenant, maybe it's a woman uh, without a husband, she's got two kids, and if she can't pay her rent, she's out on the street. So our hearts go out to her, but, but our hearts should go out to her equally if she, you know, she's alone and she's got two kids and she doesn't have food. Uh, you know, food is even more important. Well, I'm not sure which is more important, but food is very important. And yet if she goes to the grocery and starts shoplifting, uh, you don't have to go to court and wait three months. You know, you, you can get her right away. And the effects of this are very interesting because you think that it's, uh, if we're going to give kid gloves to people, we're helping them. You know, kid gloves means you help the, the victim. But no, it's the very opposite. Uh, if you give kid gloves free rentals, then then we have fewer apartments than otherwise we would have. Because, look, suppose Aunt Tilly needs you a million or $10 million. 
And now you can invent, uh, invest in residential rental units or anything else under the sun. You can uh, invest in uh, paper clips or uh, rubber bands. But you know that if you sell a paper clip uh, or a rubber band and somebody steals it, you, you, you can get them. Uh, whereas if you um, rent somebody a residential rental unit and they steal your services, you can't get them or it'll take you months to get them. So uh, what's going to happen is that investments will be directed away from um, residential rental units and the rents will be higher because supply curves shift to the left, as I tell my uh, intro students. If we have less residential housing, other things equal, the rents will be higher. So you're not really helping these people. You're hurting them. But it takes a little uh, economic logic to, to see that. Well, of course, economic logic is, is not always something that our voters specialize in. We, we, I want to move on. we got about two minutes left here. Uh, and, and I want to talk about another column that you wrote, wrote recently. And it kind of ties into what, we what we were just talking about, and that is, You've written about how you talk to your students, your, your, your college students or business school students, about, um, about libertarianism. T- talk about that, if you would. Well, you know, the, the students I have are mainly economic students, uh, either intro or majors, and they're not quite as bad as the sociology, uh, sociology students or students who take feminist studies or black studies or queer studies. They're all a bunch of Marxists. So with my students, it's not quite as an uphill uh, battle. But even my students, they come in there and they think that, you know, price gouging is evil. And the minimum wage, we've got to have a minimum wage because, uh, you know, um, uh, we want to raise wages for poor people. And, and I struggle with my intro students to try to explain to them that, you know, if you don't allow price gouging, well, then the resources will go elsewhere. If you have a minimum wage, you're going to create unemployment. Uh, for unskilled workers, you know that the unemployment rate for young black um, uh, teens is quadruple, quadruple the unemployment rate of um, white males in, in, in middle-aged white males. Uh, so these are—it's sort of an uphill battle. But hopefully, I, I um, provide some good information, and and econ students um, uh, benefit from this to a degree that uh, students in other uh, in philosophy or sociology uh, they go through school and they, and they become Marxists. We got to find a way to uh, make economics training mandatory for. Uh... Uh, feminism majors, or you know, whatever women's <laughs> studies majors, and and the whole rest of the uh, of the panoply that we see in the modern university. Uh, Walter yes. Block, thank you very much for being on the Dan Prof Show. We will be right back after these messages. Thanks for having me. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I'm John Hinderocker from uh, from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. You know, I'm old enough to remember when young people tended to be rebellious and when rock music in particular tended to be rebellious. I lived through that era. And one of the things that's really striking to me about today's world is that that's no longer true. You talk about the younger generation. You're looking at people who seem to be 
A-OK with authoritarianism. I mean, it's really quite remarkable. And we're seeing that in the context of the current shutdowns uh, over uh, COVID-19. They're, the people who are most compliant, who are happy to stay in their basements and wear masks all the time, are, are young people. And so I thought it was really interesting when a couple of aging rockers uh, namely uh, Van Morrison and Eric Clapton, uh, came out against these shutdowns because they're destroying live music, if you think about it. I mean, they've made, they've made performing music essentially impossible uh, across much of the world. And so Van Morrison and Eric Clapton have protested against that and said, wait, wait a minute, it's very important that you know, we, people be able to get together and do things like enjoy listening to music. And they have made several now anti-lockdown songs and they're not bad you know they're not maybe their best work it's not brown-eyed girl but they're better than the we are the world songs that you know have come out from liberals over the years and it's really interesting to me that uh rather than being hailed as as heroes in the in the in the proud tradition of rock and roll coming out for a little personal freedom instead they are largely being reviled and so variety magazine right the bible of show business what does Variety magazine have have to say about this? Well, here's how their their article begins. It says, "Did Van Morrison and Eric Clapton not get the memo that there is a global health catastrophe that has so far claimed nearly 1.5 million lives worldwide? Do they not know that this pandemic is far from over? In what world are these two living?" The fact that they would decide to collaborate on a song slamming COVID-19 lockdowns, discouraging people from taking extreme precautions and wearing masks to protect themselves and others is beyond unconscionable. And, you know, I think that's probably the way a lot of young people, and I guess maybe maybe young people are no longer Van Morrison's and Eric Clapton's demographic. I don't know. But I, I suspect that's the way a lot of young people react to anybody who protests against this authoritarian regime, where if you live in California, you are literally ordered not to leave your house to walk your dog unless you qualify for an exception. Now, participating in a podcast, by the way, is an exception. That is a, you know, some kind of necessary function. So if you're, if you're leaving home to be in a podcast, uh, that's different. But ordinary people are not supposed to leave their houses. I can remember when young people would have rebelled against that kind of a regime. And frankly, I'm, I'm glad to see that a couple of aging rockers are still holding up the banner of liberty. That's all for tonight. Thanks for being with us on the Dan Prop Show. This is the Dan Prop Show.